Well, Father, we look to you for our strength as we humble our hearts in your presence to receive your word, that we might be your servants who walk in obedience. Father, we want the word of God to impact our lives, and so through your Holy Spirit, through the preaching, bring it all together and challenge our hearts and open our minds and help us to be a body of people, followers of Christ, who are ever conforming to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ in our living and in our heart to serve you and to love you and to obey you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3, because in our text this morning, we're going to find out that spiritual leadership and alcohol don't mix either. Um... The Apostle Paul, as you recall, if you've been around fellowship very long, and we've had some major interruption to our First Timothy series, we are working our way through this epistle, this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to young Pastor Timothy, who is in a city called Ephesus, a church at Ephesus, that has had a bunch of issues going on. And First Timothy is written so that Paul can instruct Timothy to straighten out these problems. They had gotten um, off in their doctrine. They had begun to preach a false gospel. And evidently, one of the problems that they had is they had begun to appoint and to accept among their leadership unqualified, ungodly men in their spiritual leadership. Um, The Apostle Paul, by the time we're in 1 Timothy chapter 3, is giving young Timothy encouragement to take this list of criteria for spiritual leadership in the local church and to enforce it. These are the kinds of people that must lead the local church. If you don't have these qualities evidenced in your life, then you do not qualify. You should not be appointed to spiritual leadership. We learned in our study that the words pastor, elder, bishop, that these are interchangeable, overseer. These are all the highest level. The enduring office of the eldership is something that through the centuries is one of the offices that God has given to help us stabilize and to lead and to oversee our local churches. One of the things that happens is when we don't appoint qualified people to leadership and we have ungodly men in leadership, it doesn't take very long for the name of Jesus Christ and the testimony of that church and that community to be disgraced because leadership is so important. It's interesting to me that on our list today that the Apostle Paul is going to mention alcohol and drinking and becoming under the influence of alcohol. That is just a really incredible subject in our culture right now and in the church. There is interesting application because it seems to me that in the last 10 or 15 years, it has become wildly popular among Christian community and Christian church people to want to drink. You know me, if you've been around here very long, to know that I have personally a real problem with that. And I will share some of my personal convictions, but my primary goal this morning, as always, is to present to you the Word of God, less Pastor Van's personal thoughts and ideas, unless they're biblical, of course. Let's read our text, 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we will see that we have this list of qualities that are to be seen in the lives of the spiritual leaders of the church, And don't forget as we read it, men, that our goal in this series is also to challenge the men of Fellowship Bible Church to step it up spiritually. 
we'll find as we study other parts of the New Testament that all of the qualities on this list are expected of all believers in the New Testament. And this is the minimum requirements for those. They must be evident for those who are in leadership. They are called upon on all believers to be evident in their lives as we grow in Christ. And our goal here is to use this as a template for spiritual growth among our men that then in turn the hearts of our women at Fellowship Bible Church would be filled with joy as they see spiritually strong, stable men leading our homes, leading our families, leading our church. Here's our list. Paul says to Timothy, this is a trustworthy saying. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer or elder or pastor, he must, he desires a noble task. It's a high calling, a noble task. As a result, therefore, an overseer or an elder or pastor must be above reproach. For him to be above reproach, he must be the husband of one wife. He must be a one-woman kind of a man. He, does, he can't have his mind, his thoughts, or his behavior going out after other women. The husband of one wife, he must be serious, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. And here's our term, and we'll just stop here in our list. And he must not, verse 3, not a drunkard, the ESV says. Isn't that interesting? I mean, you're going down this list... And you can see these dynamics that are so important. And all of a sudden, he pulls out, like, not a drunkard. That's a strong phrase, a strong word. There's lots of things he didn't put in. He didn't say he can't shoot pool, can't play cards, whatever. Just don't be drunk. He can't be a guy who drinks to the point that he is influenced by the alcohol in his bloodstream. I think that's really an interesting concept, why he put it there. And we see right away, number one, that Paul has evidently taken this as a critical concern. Number one, this is a critical concern of the Apostle Paul, or he wouldn't have put it in the list. And I think it's logical, in a sense, that he put this there, because if you notice in the context, he is using some words that all have to do with the self-control of an individual. He uses the word self-control, for example, but the idea, is, the idea there is of being above reproach. Obviously, if an elder or a pastor were to be seen drunk or come to church drunk... He would not be above reproach. He would not be respected. And he could not fall into the category of someone who is self-controlled. This phrase is interesting. The ESV says, not a drunkard. The New King James Version translates the Greek here, not given to wine. So somebody who is compelled really wants to drink. They really care about their wine, their alcoholic drink. The New American Standard uses the phrase, not addicted to wine. Clearly, the Apostle Paul is concerned about alcohol having a hold on the life of a spiritual leader. The NIV says, not given to drunkenness. So there is an, an emphasis in the nuance of the English translation that has to do with the controlling power of alcohol is not to be there. Now, I will say, and admittedly up front, that in the context and in the teaching, the Apostle Paul clearly could have said that you must abstain from all alcohol. It would have been easy to do that, wasn't it? it couldn't it? Wouldn't it be? Wouldn't it? Couldn't it? Shouldn't it be that? But he didn't say that. He just said, it's not to have a control on you. We'll look at some other principles that I think will help shed light on our decision-making on how should a Christian think about their use of alcohol? How much should we drink? Is it okay to drink? What does that say about us? And so um, that's where we want to understand what the Bible teaches, and then we won't get out of here without me sharing a little bit of what I think as well. 
What we see, though, in this passage clearly um, is the idea that, that the, the elder, overseer, pastor is not to have a, a grip on his life by alcohol. It's interesting that in the Greek, it's a compound word that comes up with the idea of not being a drunkard. It's two words in the Greek that are put together, not a drunkard. And the idea is from the word beside and wine. One of the words is beside, like I am beside the pulpit. You are sitting beside someone and wine. That is, the elder is not to be someone who is noted for being beside wine, lingering over wine. I think the old King James uh, references at one point. Spiritual leadership must not be controlled by their desire to drink. They must have self-control over these appetites. They must not be under the control of alcohol. And as I referenced, I think the Apostle Paul is including drunkenness, evidently because it was somewhat of a problem in the early church. We did, we did see that in Corinth. Uh, years ago, we preached through the book of 1 Corinthians. And at the church in Corinth, you know, maybe chapter 11, where the teaching Paul teaches on communion and the Lord's Supper, that one of the major problems was that people who had more affluence and wealth in the church, there usually wasn't much of a middle class in those early centuries, there were people who had some wealth and some prestige. There were then the poorer class of people, including those who were uh, servants or slave class. And what happened was the people in Corinth, those with wealth, would come in and they would feast and gorge themselves at these love feasts. And not, they would have supper together as a church on the, uh, the times when they would gather to have communion. And they would gorge themselves and they drank enough wine that they were becoming drunk so that the Apostle Paul accused them of being drunk at the communion table. I mean, that is be shocking to us to see some guy coming in to have communion. You know, it wouldn't take long. And it, ushers, get him out of here. Because we just don't think like that. But evidently, influenced by pagan ritual and pagan religions that used alcohol at a high level in their religious feasts and their religious festivals, people would literally get sloppy drunk at some of these events. The Apostle Paul says you can't do that. And so it's in the area of self-control. And it's easy to understand, isn't it? Can you imagine having a spiritual leader that didn't have self-control? That didn't command respect of people because he can't even control his own appetites and desires? Self-control is foundational to Christian maturity. Wouldn't you agree with that? Self-control is foundational Christian maturity. You are not a mature believer if you have not conquered your fleshly desires. If you are not a person who is self-controlled and can make yourself do that which is right, deny yourself those appetites that will lead you astray, you are not mature. This is also a prerequisite to commanding respect and esteem. You would not have respect you would not have high esteem for a spiritual leader among our congregation who did not have or exercise self-control. So we see that Paul has a critical concern that Timothy not appoint anybody to spiritual leadership who has an issue with alcohol to the degree that they come under its influence. Now, this is an interesting concept, and I think we can understand a little bit deeper why this is a concern of the Apostle Paul and how this relates to all believers when we look at the biblical command, number two, the biblical command. 
we move from Paul's critical concern about spiritual leaders to the biblical command for all believers, and that's in Ephesians chapter 5. Will you turn there in your Bible, please? This is a rather familiar passage of Scripture. You just have to turn back a few pages to Ephesians chapter 5, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, and then Ephesians. And in chapter 5, we're going to just jump right into the middle of some teaching that the Apostle Paul is doing about how a Christian needs to live wise. He should not be unwise. He needs to be careful how he lives. The old King James used the word walk circumspectly. That means very carefully how you live your life. And we jump in at verse 18, and his instruction is, in verse 17, not to be foolish, know God's will for your life. And verse 18, Ephesians 5, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And the way the verse is set up, that he's using kind of a a comparison and a contrast. The idea is that if you are under the influence of alcohol to the degree that it registers and you are then being influenced by the alcohol in your bloodstream, drunk, that is the opposite of being filled with the Spirit or controlled by the Spirit. The idea in our New Testament of of the believer in the Lord Christ being filled with the Spirit is the idea control. It's a little bit like this. When I put my jacket on, I fill it. And we won't comment about where I fill it, but I can get my buttons buttoned. It's a little tight in the shoulders, I will admit, but I fill my jacket, right? I fill it. And so now what happens when I fill my jacket, the jacket goes wherever I go, right? See, I have filled my jacket. I am controlling my jacket. And that's the idea of the filling of the Spirit. It's not something that you have to beg for repeatedly in your life. It's not like a second blessing after salvation. The idea is that when you're born again, when you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, that is, you've come to a place in your life and you recognize that God is a holy God and that you are a sinner and that your sin blocks your relationship with God, and then one day the lights turn on and you recognize that God loved you so much that out of His kindness, He sent Jesus Christ to go to the cross to take your sin upon Himself so that by faith, that is by believing it to be true for you, you can look to Jesus and the cross. That's why the cross is so important in our Christian churches Because that's where the divine intersection took place. That's where God sent Jesus to pay the penalty for our sin so that sinners could look to Christ, look to the cross, and be saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Well, the moment of your salvation, when when God substituted Jesus in for your penalty, and you admit it, and you know you're a sinner, and you've accepted his free gift of salvation, there's all kinds of things that happen at the moment of your salvation. Our New Testament is filled with rich teaching on all the things that happen when we're saved. And one of the things that happen, happens that is so amazing, and I think we probably don't think about this enough, is... The Bible teaches that at that point, God sends his Holy Spirit to indwell you and your body then is the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Your body is the temple, you would say, of God. That's why we have the freedom to tear down these chairs and play volleyball in here. 
This isn't where God lives in a sense. Now, when God's people are gathered together corporately, I believe that he is in our presence in a spiritual way. And the body of Christ represents his presence and Jesus indwells his body in a spiritual way. But he indwells the believer through his Holy Spirit. So when you walk around and you get up and you go, the Holy Spirit goes with you. He's in you. Your body is the temple, the dwelling place. This room is not a sanctuary. It's not a sacred place. We can, we can eat in here and shoot our bows in here and, and play volleyball in here and bring the day camp kids in here in the rain when, when it's a rainy day and we use it for all kinds of things. Now, it's an important room because we gather here to hear God's word and I think it's amazing how this room can transform and be comfortable for us and to be focused on our worship and on the word of God. But listen... Your body is the sacred place. Your body is what is sacred because the Holy Spirit indwells. Okay, so you are filled with the Spirit and then we are to walk in control of the Spirit. It is possible for us to disobey God's Word and to walk in disobedience and to quench the Holy Spirit. One of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is to kind of poke us in the eye when we do something wrong. The Holy Spirit especially works well with the Christian and his conscience. And he said, you shouldn't do that. You know, you get this feeling of, I really shouldn't be here. I really shouldn't go in that place. I really shouldn't do this. This is wrong. And sometimes we just quench the spirit. We just shut it down. I don't care. doesn't matter. I'm doing it anyway. You've made up your mind. And you know that point, the tipping point when you know you're going to sin. And it doesn't matter after that. You're gone. It's quenching the Spirit, and you know what happens after that. It grieves the Spirit. It grieves the Spirit. Well, there's a lot to the ministries of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and we must move on. But the idea is that Paul's critical concern with the leadership of the church at a spiritual level is that they be Spirit-filled, that is, Spirit-controlled men. And the idea is that if you are ever drunk, you are not filled with the Spirit. And this is the biblical command to all believers. Did you notice in Ephesians 5.18 that it is commanded, do not get drunk. That's an imperative. You are not to be drunk and you are to be filled with the Spirit. That is, you are to let the Spirit of God control you. Listen, if you drink and you get a buzz going and you're starting to be influenced by the alcohol, one thing you know for sure is you are now no longer under the control of the Holy Spirit. I think that's scary. Alcohol now controls you at some level. You are no longer under the control of the Holy Spirit. It's a clear command. It is essential to be filled with the Spirit, to not be drunk, and to be filled with the Spirit is essential to show forth the fruit of the Spirit in your life. That is, Galatians chapter 5, the evidence is that the Spirit of God is in you. Do you remember those, that little list in Galatians 5? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, gentleness. Now, I'll tell you what, some of the scariest moments in ministry and my pastoral work have been those middle-of-the-night phone calls when I've had to go deal with a drunk man somewhere. There is no gentleness, man. It is scary. There is no evidence of the fruit of the Spirit. And in fact, on our list, we have the word self-control. And so... Here we are, we are given a command from the Bible, from God's word clearly, that we are to be filled with the Spirit, not drunk with wine or alcohol. We are to be filled with the Spirit so that we can display forth the fruit of the Spirit. 
so that we're qualified to be involved in spiritual leadership, but this is the call on every believer's life. That then leads us, though, number three, to a logical question, doesn't it? It leads us to the question that you're thinking, all right? Part A of the question is, okay, what about Bible passages that do not condemn drinking wine? What about that? If we're not to be drunk, and then Jesus, for example, in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, at the wedding of Cana, did he not turn water into wine? And did that wine not have alcoholic content? And were they not celebrating? And did they not taste it and say, wow, that's good stuff? What about 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23? This is the big kicker. This is the one that you hear the most. Paul told Timothy... Take some wine for your stomach's sake and all the frequent ailments you have. Evidently, Timothy had some intestinal tract issues, perhaps even because of this teaching that he had heard from Paul that spiritual leaders should abstain from being drunk. He had, he had become a teetotaler and he had stopped drinking wine and the condition of the water was poor enough that the water was making him sick with the, the microorganisms. Paul said, drink a little wine. Let the alcohol help purify the water that you're drinking. This is kind of a big subject, and there's a lot of question about this. There's been significant research on this. And so our first question is, what about this wine that the Bible doesn't condemn? Paul telling Timothy to drink it, Jesus making it happen. In Isaiah 55, it says, come, everyone who is thirsty. And he moves on and he says, come buy wine. And, and milk without money. It's even picturesque of, of a relationship with God and a joy of being God's children. What about it? To the best of my research that I've been able to find, one of the things that I think is significant here is that it appears, and they've studied early century writings and recipes and what people have written down and what they've done. It appears that the wine of the Bible indeed had alcoholic content. I think historically and contextually and exegetically, it is foolish to try to argue that the wine of the New Testament did not have alcohol in it. Otherwise, you couldn't get drunk on it. It wouldn't be necessary to give a command for it, for one thing. That's an exegetical argument. Historically, uh, we understand that this wine had some alcoholic content, but we also have learned uh, that the formula that was common was evidently three parts water and one part wine. That was the best information I could come up with in researching this. And the idea was that that wine was not in the category of strong drink. That is, if you could get drunk on it, you would have had to drink so much, your stomach would have popped by the time you got that much in you. The alcoholic content of three parts water and the one part wine that they used, the wine was enough to flavor the water. They did not usually have very good water. And as I said, they had issues with microorganisms in their water. And they found that by mixing this wine with the water, it helped make it more palatable and more healthy for them. The idea is that that is not, though, in the category of strong drink. You will find in your Bible that in almost every case, strong drink is condemned. There are some passages that allow wine, and the idea would be, historically, it appears to be a three parts water, one part wine that is less than 3% alcohol. So the second part of our question is, all right, 
If the Bible of the wine had some alcoholic content, the second part of the question is, was the wine of the Bible the same as the wine of today? And the short answer to that is no. The wine of today has more alcohol in it than the kind of wine they're talking about that they drank in the Bible that was almost always a watered-down wine. Well, that leads us to some other questions then, and, and uh, we're limited on our time and And uh, the idea here is um, to answer questions, not leave you with more questions. So let's just back up and step to where we've gotten so far. The Apostle Paul has a critical concern. Spiritual leadership is not to be under the influence. Okay? The biblical commandment is, do not be drunk, but be filled with the Spirit. The, the, the question then, the logical question that comes up with, well then how come, how come there is wine in the Bible and if there is wine in the Bible, did it have alcohol and is it the same as today? And the answer is, I believe clearly, yes, there was alcoholic content to it. So you can't say, like, if I cook with wine, am I sinning? I don't think so. You know? The idea there is that, that um, the kind of wine that they drank in the Bible, though, had less alcoholic punch to it than the the wine or common alcoholic drinks of today. And most of the common alcoholic drinks of today would fall in the category of strong drink. In the Bible, in Proverbs chapter 23, beginning with verse 29, we'll not turn there, there is the lengthiest and most thorough look at what strong drink does. And he says there, don't even look at it. It'll get you in trouble. But let's just do this. Let's just end with number four. Uh, a cultural contrast. Cultural contrast. Okay, so here's my thinking. I know I'm not to be drunk. I know I'm to be filled with the Spirit. But maybe I like to drink. Maybe drinking is something that I really enjoy doing. How much can I drink? Is it right for me to drink? Should Christians drink? Is it sin for Christians to drink? Okay. Obviously, there's the level of conscience that comes into play. One of the things that we know for sure is that believers in the Lord Christ are to have a clear cultural contrast with the rest of their world. This is one reason, and now my pastoral concern, is I don't understand why it has become so common and so popular in the church for people to desire to drink alcohol in public places. Why why has it become almost fashionable among God's people to say, I have the liberty to drink? And I don't know what you do and what your personal convictions are, and whether you like to have a beer in the refrigerator when you come in and, and from, you're all hot and sweaty from mowing the lawn, and man, you like to pop a beer and cool off or whatever. But I would say that as we seek to bear testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are called out ones. We are to be distinctively Christ-like in so many ways. We are to be not as close to the world as we can be, but we are to be as close to Jesus as we can be. So maybe, let me just read my list of questions almost without comment, and maybe this will be a helpful way to kind of wrap this up. As we think about spiritual convictions and cultural contrast, let me ask a number of questions. Number one, I think that it's important for a Christian to ask themselves, why am I drinking? Why am I drinking? Why do I drink? What is it that compels you to want to drink? Is it a public image thing? Is it an embarrassment that somebody might know, well, he's a Christian, he doesn't drink? I think that if you've been around here very long, you know that I'm a teetotaler. 
that is out of conscience and conviction, personally, um, that is my personal conviction, um, I, I'm not embarrassed of that at all. It doesn't bother me one bit to go be around people. or I mean, I don't like to be around drinking. But it doesn't bother me, nor would I feel pressured that somebody would think that I'm uncool. They probably think that regularly anyway. But I think the question, why am I drinking? What is it that compels me to drink? I think that's a very important question to ask and to answer. What about my image, is it? Second question is, what am I drinking? What am I drinking? Are you drinking an alcoholic beverage that after just a few drinks, you will be under the influence of alcohol? I mean, that raises the whole question of when are you under the influence and when aren't you under the influence? When are you drunk and when aren't you drunk? I don't know. You see the commercial on television. The guy rolls down his window and the officer comes up. You been drinking tonight? No, sir. He rolls down the window and all the um, fluid pours out the window. It's like buzz driving is drunk driving, I think, is the catch line. Well, when are you drunk? When aren't you drunk? I don't know. But if you're drinking strong drink, you set yourself up to be under the influence of alcohol. And we have a clear prohibition to not be drunk. Are you drinking a diluted wine? I don't know. I doubt it. Why am I drinking? What am I drinking? I think a third question that we need to ask is, is it worth the risk? Is it worth the risk? One in seven people, they say, when they put alcohol to their lips, one in seven people who put alcohol to their lips will have their lives some way, in some form, negatively impaired by alcohol. That's a pretty rude statistic. I mean, if you went to your favorite restaurant and every seventh plate that they served gave you gastrointestinal issues so that you couldn't leave home for the next 24 hours, would you keep eating at that restaurant? One in seven? And what if hepatitis C was on one in seven plates being served? One in seven sandwiches being passed out the window? How long would that place stay in business? And yet we somehow make this allowance for the destructive nature of alcohol in our culture and how highly influential it is in a negative way. And yet we always want to rationalize why it's okay. What am I drinking? Why am I drinking? Is it worth the risk? How about this question? Can I endorse this practice to the children of my family or the youth of my church? Can I endorse what I do drinking? Can I, can I show the children that? Can I go to the youth group and say, do this? If I can't communicate it, you say, well, it's an adult thing. I think you've got to think that through a little bit. Number five, does this strengthen my testimony for Christ? Does my drinking of alcohol strengthen or does it damage? And it, I don't know what your conclusions would be there exactly. But does it strengthen my testimony for Christ? Is there something about that can of beer in your hand that makes people think about Jesus? I wonder about that. Number six, is it potentially destructive to your body? The answer is yes. Is it potentially destructive to your body? And then based upon our teaching that our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, how do I rationalize behavior that is potentially destructive to my body. Number seven, ask yourself honestly, would my personal health, my marriage, and my conscience be better off if I simply stopped drinking? Would my marriage, my conscience, and my family be better off if I just stopped drinking? 
Number eight, finally, does drinking alcoholic beverages at any level make me more qualified to be above reproach or less qualified to be above reproach? I know that this topic is controversial in some ways. I will clearly say the Bible could have, and Paul could have said, you must abstain. It doesn't say that. It says you must not get drunk. I think that we have to be very careful then. How much are we under the influence? What is it that influences you? Have you thought through what you drink, how you drink, and why you drink, and whether you should drink? I think those are important questions, and maybe I didn't answer as many as you would have liked to have heard, um, but we need to, to conclude at this point. Clearly, the Apostle Paul says, if a spiritual leader in the church is under the influence, he is disqualified from leadership. Clearly, it says that. Clearly, the Apostle Paul says, we are not to be drunk, but to be filled with the Spirit. Let's bow in prayer. Well, Father, we um, want to be good students of your word, and and we want the word of God to to be like a chisel or a scalpel and and to work on us and to teach us and to grow us. And so uh, I pray, Lord, that that you would continue through the ministry of your Holy Spirit to work in us and on us. And, And if there's folks here that need to make some changes, I pray that you would challenge their hearts and their minds. Father, I think about perhaps an individual who has an issue here and um, nobody knows it. Maybe there's some stuff going on in their private world and they are more at risk from the influence of alcohol than anybody around them realizes. Would you please deliver them? Would you please challenge them? Would you give us, Father, a renewed um, energy and enthusiasm for self-control in our lives? Would you give us a great desire for just the joy of simple obedience? Father, would you be uh, that element in our lives that motivates us and perks us up and, and encourages us and, and stabilizes us. And may we not find ourselves having to grab a glass or a can of something to calm our nerves because we're your children and you are an ever-present help in time of need. Help us not to be dependent upon these things, but to simply know the joy of letting the Spirit of God control us. So accomplish your purposes in us, Lord. May may you be the praise of our lives. May we be a congregation that brings honor and glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen.